0: story is told of a man named Michael Acorn. He received a slip in his post office box to pick up a two foot long by about five pound package. Seeing as it was close to Christmas he was getting excited because he was thinking maybe it was an unexpected gift. So his wife Margaret was cheerfully going to the post office and ready to pick up the gift all on her own. And as she uh, she drove to the post office, or excuse me, she drove it back from her office in Detroit, she began to worry. She was kind of a worrywart. The box was from Best Buy, but despite having the same last name, she didn't know who Edward Acorn was. She began to think, what if it's a bomb? Out of an overdue abundance of caution, she telephoned the uh, postal authorities. The bomb squad arrived, with eight squad cars and an armored truck. They took the suspected bomb in the armored truck to a remote tip of Belle Isle in the middle of the Detroit River. There they wrapped detonating cord around the package and, as they say in the business, opened it remotely. When the debris settled and all, or all that was left intact was dirt, dust, tiny pieces of the contents with burn marks and a portion of the card from the sender. It read, Merry Christmas, enjoy your new laptop. (laughs) This left uh, Michael and Margaret with a big mystery. Who is Edward Acorn and why did he send such a nice gift? And while this story about uh, Michael and Margaret is a little on the humorous side, it teaches us something as well. Michael and Margaret did not know what was in the box they received, and their lack of knowledge caused them to miss out on the gift that was inside the box. And sadly, I think there are too many people today that miss out on the glorious gift of our salvation because they are unaware of everything that's in the box. So with Christmas right around the corner, I have to ask us, do we fully understand our gift of salvation? We got a gift. Many people don't uh, don't know all that comes in this little box. But when we remain ignorant of all of its parts, we do a similar thing in what Michael and Margaret did. We devalue the gift and we destroy the gift that is in our uh, in our hearts because we don't fully understand it. So we're going to take the time to open our gift today, and as we go. There's another box inside our box. And it is the gift of regeneration. Regeneration happens at the very moment that we put our faith and trust in Christ Jesus as our Lord. When we talk about regeneration, we are making an assumption that human nature uh, needs to be regenerated. It needs to be transformed. And when we look at scripture, we see that we are spiritually incapable of helping ourselves. And as a result, we need to be completely reborn. When Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus, Nicodemus couldn't quite grasp that as to what he meant by reborn. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter two, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it is by grace that you have been saved. Paul's making it very clear that we are completely incapable of doing anything from a spiritual standpoint. We are dead spiritually. We have no abilities whatsoever. We can't do anything that is going to bring God's favor. We can't do anything that is going to put God in our debt As if God somehow owes us something for who we are or what we've done. We cannot earn our way to heaven. We are just like a corpse that cannot get up, can't speak, can't work, can't play. From a spiritual standpoint, we are dead. But Paul also makes it clear that we have been made alive in Christ. It is God that breathed the breath of life into us. It is God that completely changed our condition. And this, by the way, is no modification, as if uh, God is taking something and making it better. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Now, there are two words in Greek for the word new. The first one is neos. Make sure I give you a proper understanding. Use it in a sentence. Keith is neos. It means Youthful. (laughs) The second word means uh, recently made or created. So in other words, the old life, the sinful nature is completely gone. There is no sense of modification. The new life has come. It is recently made. The regeneration has come to us. It is being in Christ, trusting in Christ as our Savior, that brings about this change in the act of regeneration. God is bringing life to the lifeless so that we can live a life that pleases Him. Regeneration is the only way that the sin nature is removed and our spiritual life begins and becomes alive. So this is our gift of regeneration. I'm going to open this box and see what's next. It's a gift of Justification. Regeneration and justification start at the very same time. In that moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, all of these things take place. They are hardly perceptible to us, but all of these gifts are gifts of salvation. The basic way to understand justification is that old phrase, just as if I never sinned. But uh, it's a great way to remember justification, but when you dig into it, it is far richer. In fact, Pastor Trevor talked a little bit about justification last week, and I was sitting over here going, he's stealing my entire sermon for next week. (laughs) However, I do think that we are uh, close enough, but different enough that we'll dovetail together well. Justification is a legal term meaning to make right or reasonable. So for us in theological terms, it means to declare someone right or righteous. I'm going to say that one more time. It means to declare someone as right or righteous. Notice that I did not say that justification makes someone righteous. We announce that that person is righteous. We declare that about that person. Uh, I once sat on a jury in Michigan, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, I got to sit through the entire uh, process sit through the trial, and at the beginning of the trial, the judge asked, can anybody not serve on the, the jury? I said, I have a plane ticket to Florida at the end of the week, um, and I was hoping that was gonna get me thrown off the jury. No such luck. She said, oh, we're, we'll be done by Friday. We were not done by Friday, okay? Uh, in fact, the judge turned to me and said, uh, Mr. Langley, would you like to uh, stick around for the end of the trial? And I replied, would the court like to purchase me a new ticket to Florida? (laughs) Hoping I didn't get thrown in jail for that moment. But anyway, as we listened to this guy and all the testimony and what was going on, okay, you see him running on video from the police. There is testimony about uh, other people uh, testifying against him. There was physical evidence. This guy was as guilty as guilty gets, And that's our position before God. We are busted, there's fingerprints, there's video evidence, forensic evidence, witnesses. There is absolutely no way out of it for us. We are completely guilty. However, we've got a great lawyer. In fact, I hear that he's the greatest lawyer there ever was. We stand before the judge with this huge debt to society. One that we could never pay because we are completely broke. During the trial, our lawyer goes up to the judge and asks for a sidebar. So they have a little conversation amongst themselves. And after the sidebar, the judge picks up his gavel and you are sitting there fully expecting to hear the words, guilty on all charges. Instead, when he bangs his gavel, you hear, not guilty, you are free to go you are completely blown away by this verdict. How could this possibly have happened? This was an open and shut case. So you, not being a legal expert, turn to your lawyer and say, could you give me an explanation of what just happened here? Your lawyer says, I paid the debt for you. You're free to go. What the judge did in this trial was to declare you not guilty, or he justified you. Now, how is that possible? If the judge is God and God is completely, perfectly righteous, he is holy, how can he declare something that is unholy as holy? Isn't God kind of delusional going, okay, this is holiness. Okay, there are three ways, excuse me, three ways that God could have handled this problem. First of all, he could have condemned everybody that ever set foot in his courtroom. Uh, And the fact of the matter is, we are all sinners. We are all guilty. We do not live up to the standard of God. So the judge could have easily declared all of us guilty. And make no mistake about this. I said that God doesn't owe us anything a moment or two ago. And in that standpoint, that's true. He doesn't owe us anything for who we are. But He does owe us one thing He owes us condemnation and punishment because we are sinners only thing that God actually owes to us. That's God's first option. He could just condemn everybody who walks into the courtroom. The second option is he could exonerate everybody who walks into the courtroom. You're all free to go. Don't have to do anything. No debt has to be paid. Just, you know, I'm sure you didn't mean it. So just go on your way. He could have done that, but that compromises his holiness. It compromises the fact that somebody's got to pay the debt and nobody's paying that debt. He's just letting it go. So basically, like uh, Trevor said last week, he's just basically sweeping things under the rug. The third option, he can declare them to be righteous. How does a person get that declaration made about them? Who is actually paying the debt? And of course, we all know the answer to this question, so I'll ask it one more time, and you can all tell me, because this is what I call one of those Sunday school answers, so you should all know this. Sunday school answers are Jesus, God, and the Bible, all right? You know which one this is. Who paid the debt for us, boys and girls? Jesus. Thank you. Um, how did Jesus pay the debt? How did he become our righteousness? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took our sins so that he would, in essence, become sin on our behalf. Then we get to claim the righteousness of Jesus for ourselves. It is the greatest exchange ever. We give him our sin. We get to take his righteousness He takes our punishment for our sins. We receive the rewards of his righteousness. It is the greatest trade in all of history. If you walked into the New York Stock Exchange with a mountain of debt and someone tells you out of their pile of riches, they will take care of your massive debt. It's still not as great of a trade as what Jesus has done for us. Because what Jesus did for us is make the way so that we could have relationship with God again, so that we could go and live in eternity with him. Now, back to your trial. Christ, who is our lawyer, walked up in that sidebar with the judge and put his righteousness on the table to pay our debt of sin. By the way, Christ's righteousness is all that we need. Because I think too many of us are ready to run up there to the judge and think that we can slap something of our righteousness on the table and add that to what Jesus just did. And the fact of the matter is, we can't do that. Isaiah calls our righteousness filthy rags. The best we have to set on the judge's uh, desk is something that is offered up as garbage. Stuff that is supposed to be thrown away and burned. So, we don't need to try and add something to the payment that Jesus made, because the payment he made was enough. Now, this is the gift that we call justification it is intrinsically linked to salvation. The moment we say, Yes, Jesus, I need your forgiveness and your righteousness because I know that mine is not enough, the moment that we admit our condition and throw ourselves on the mercy of the court, That is when we receive these gifts of regeneration and of justification. But there's still more. We need to open up the next one. Still inside this gift is yet another box. You ever do this on Christmas? Box inside of a box? This one is the gift of adoption. And just after the judge declares you right and you're ready to head out the courtroom, the judge now hands you something else. And he says, not only are you declared right, you are now adopted into the family. He gives you his adoption papers or your adoption papers. We went from alienated, guilty, and ready to be condemned in front of the court to forgiven, accepted, and welcomed into the family. And in that moment, we see the judge in a whole new light. He once was the one on the righteous side of the law. He once was the one that we feared. He once was the one that condemned. He was the judge. And after having been adopted into the family, he went from being judge to being father. He went from being the one that condemns to the one who lovingly cares and leads us. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You receive the spirit of sonship. And by that we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Did you catch it in those verses? We didn't receive a spirit of fear. We no longer fear the judge because the judge has now made us sons and daughters of the king. That's why we don't fear the judge any longer. Because of this change from judge to father, we receive huge benefits. Uh, Our our adoption means continued forgiveness. If God only declared us righteous, that would take care of our past sins. But it wouldn't necessarily take care of our future sins. Uh, By being adopted into God's family, we are now relating to God as father. Father. Fathers don't kick their kids out of the family when they make mistakes. They know that their children need training and they need to grow in areas of life to become more mature. God doesn't kick us out of his family when we sin. He's a loving father. He's patient with us, understanding our weaknesses, and realizes that we need training to become mature in our relationship with him. This brings up uh, an additional benefit or a related one. The gift of assurance or eternal security. Our Father does not kick us out of the family when we have genuinely turned our life over to Jesus. And by that I mean you declare that you are following Jesus and there is demonstrable fruit in your life as a person who's living Christ. Okay? That's both. You can tell me that you love Jesus and that you care about Jesus, but if I don't see it lived out in your life, I have to question what's going on for you. If you are genuinely a believer, you never have to worry about your salvation. That assurance does not rely on the fact of you being able to keep yourself saved, as if you have to do all of the right things. You have to prove to God and to others just how righteous you really are. If you cannot save yourself Why do you think you can keep yourself saved? Our salvation is not based on us. It's based on Jesus, on his character, and on his work on the cross and the payment that he made for us. Uh, I may have told you guys this before. A theologian was once asked, what did I do? Uh, What was my role in salvation? And the theologian answered, I sinned. It's all I did when it came to salvation. If we did nothing to receive our salvation, then why do we think we can play some sort of a role in keeping ourselves saved? Jesus put it this way, John chapter 6, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. Our salvation is assured because Jesus is the one that gives it to us. Not because of anything that we did, It is all based on him. So the first benefit of adoption is continued forgiveness, including assurance. The second benefit of adoption is reconciliation. Reconciliation, according to uh, Charles Ryrie, means a change of relationship from hostility to harmony and peace between two parties. This is another action that is initiated by God. We were separated from God because of sin. Again, Romans chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were the enemies of God, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we're now reconciled to him. So because of adoption, we've got forgiveness, we've got reconciliation, but we also have something called liberty. God has freed us from the power of sin. We do not have to be a slave to it any longer. John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We're back to this idea of assurance. A son or daughter belongs to the family forever. If the son sets us free, we are completely free. But any conversation of liberty also brings up this idea of license. Does that mean that we are free to pass, uh, or excuse me, that we have a free pass on sin and can live any way we want? Romans chapter 6, Paul anticipates this question, and he says, may it never be. Now, it's Christmas time. How many of y'all seen the movie Home Alone? Everybody? Okay. We all know Kevin McAllister. He's stuck in his house all by himself. And there's a day where he decides he's going to get washed up, cleaned up, ready to go take care of the day. And while he's standing in front of the mirror, he's singing his little white Christmas song and eventually starts telling us all about his day and what he's going to do. Tells us about all the parts of his body he cleaned, what's been going on, all this stuff. But finally, the last part of that scene, he slaps on the aftershave. And you get this... That's the face I want you to remember when you read what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. When he says, may it never be, that is Paul just going, are you kidding me? How could you even think this? We don't sin more to get more grace. There is no such thing as license. We don't get to do that. And I'm going to tell you this, and some of you are going to think I'm really mean. I sure hope that you wore your combat steel-toed shoes, because I promise you I'm going to dance all over them right now. If you think that you can do anything you want because God is gracious and he has set you free, I'm going to tell you that you don't understand or appreciate the grace of God. And here comes the combat boots. If that's true of you, I'm going to tell you that you don't know Christ. Simple as that. So the instant that we believe we receive regeneration, we receive the gift of justification, the gift of adoption. But again, there is still more left in these boxes. We also receive the gift of sanctification. Now, Millard Erickson is a theologian, a good theologian, by the way, if you ever want to read his book, Christian Theology, that's what this comes from. And he says, sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. That uh, all sounds great, but let me break it down for you. Uh, the very first thing Erickson said is, it's a process. And I'm going to tell you, sanctification is a lifelong process, it is the continuation of regeneration. Each day we become new all over again. Each day we choose to pick up our cross, die to ourselves, and follow after Jesus. But then he says it brings our moral condition in line with our legal condition. What he's saying is when we were justified, we were declared righteous, that's our legal standing. That cannot be taken away from us. When God looks at us, All he sees is not the sin about us. He sees Christ's righteousness because we made that swap. However, when we look, uh, excuse me, even though we are right in the eyes of God, we sadly do not live up to what we have been declared. We continue to battle sin on a daily basis. We continue to struggle to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. And sanctification is the process of trying to match our daily life up to what God has already declared about us. We are right before God by declaration. Now we are working to live up to what God has declared about us. And I'm going to tell you, if we understood that a little better, if we kept that in the forefront of our mind, that God has already declared us righteous, when we understand that part, it gives us far more motivation to be living Righteously be living the way that God has asked us to do. If we can't save ourselves and we can't keep ourselves saved, how do we sanctify ourselves? The answer, we can't. However, the Holy Spirit can. John chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. At that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. He comes and lives in us so that we have the ability to seek after God. He is there in our life to be guiding us, be guiding our choices, and what we do in life. And the Holy Spirit acts as a deposit. When we have the Holy Spirit as a result of salvation, He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Anyone in here ever buy a house? Probably all of you, okay? You understand this whole concept of a deposit with the whole concept of earnest money. That's the money that you lay down up front saying, I am serious about buying your house. I'm going to lay down my $1,000 or whatever it is that they ask for. And if I walk out of this contract, I'm going to lose that $1,000, right? That's the whole concept that we get from buying a house. In our case, God gives us the deposit of the Holy Spirit. We know He's not going to be removing the Holy Spirit from us because our salvation is assured. Ephesians chapter 1. This is where all of this comes from. Verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. You were marked in him with a seal. That's a whole other sermon unto itself. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We have received the gift of regeneration, justification, adoption, and we've got one more to go. We received the gift of glorification. It's a good thing because I'm running out of table and don't have any more boxes to go. Glorification in the very basic sense is easy to understand. We go to heaven. That's glorification. Glorification. But again, if you dig in a little deeper, there's a whole lot more to it. Glorification brings five things for us as genuine believers. First, it's going to bring peace from judgment. Matthew chapter 25 talks about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats. There's judgment there that Jesus is meting out. And what he says to those who are genuine believers It says, Come, blessed ones, receive your inheritance that I prepared since the creation of the world. That's what we're going to hear when we get into heaven. As we stand before the judge, we stand with no fear. At the end of time, the Bible talks about standing before the judge and what he's going to do. We stand there with no fear because we've already stood there once before and were declared righteous because of what Christ has done. We as believers, when we stand before God at the end of time, it has nothing to do with whether we get into heaven or not. It has everything to do with whether or not we receive rewards. That's it. When we stand before the judge again, it is about how we lived our lives and the rewards that we will get because of it. And because of all that, that should be bringing us peace because we know we are secure in being able to get into heaven. The second thing it brings us is we're going to be perfected morally and spiritually. Philippians chapter one, verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus started the good work in you, Jesus is going to keep that good work going until it's complete. And the only time it's going to be complete is at the end of time when we are done and we are with Christ. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will keep you strong to the end that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, when glorification is realized fully, we will be fully blameless. The third thing that it also brings us is fullness of knowledge. Paul said, now we are but a poor reflection and mirror then we shall see face to face now i know in part and then i shall be fully known even as i am fully known again in michigan while i was there the church that i served owned the house next door to the church it wasn't the parsonage when i was when i arrived it was the church offices it was one of those old 1800s homes if you are into good craftsmanship and woodwork you would love this place it was amazing However, the one thing that it did have is those old school windows. You know what I'm talking about? Old school glass panes that have swirl marks and little lines running through them and all those kinds of things. So every time I would look out, eventually the church house became the youth group house. When I would look out to see who's coming for youth group, one person might look like three because of the way the glass was running, okay? That's what Paul is talking about. We right now do not see... Clearly, who Christ is, all about what's going to take place. It's obscured. We get to see part of it, but we don't get to see it cleanly and wholly. In fact, everything we know about Christ is through somebody else's eyes. We're seeing it, but we're not seeing Him. When we get to glory, we are going to get to see Him face to face. Amen? Come on, people. One day, or excuse me. Fourth thing, because of glorification, I'm going to ask who in here feels tired, wore out, and if Jesus were offer you to regenerate your body right now, you'd probably consider taking him up on the offer. Anybody? Liars. <laughs> Why do not you just sitting there staring at me? <laughs> A couple of weeks ago, I transposed my numbers. Okay. I'm 52, about to turn 53 on Thursday, just in case anybody wants to take me for lunch. Uh, instead of 52, I transposed my numbers and thought I was 25. Because I thought I was 25, I wound up hurting my back seriously and had to wind up going to the chiropractor. I would be more than happy to take Jesus up on his offer if he was going to renew my body. When glorification takes place, we will receive our new bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His body. And everybody says, Amen. All right, that's better, but come on, people. <laughs> Got to make sure you're still awake out there. In 2 Corinthians, Paul also puts it this way. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Again, let me explain. If you have ever struggled with pain, with sickness, with limitations from physical uh, in your physical body, relational struggles, struggles due to finances, the list goes on and on and on. If you have had a life that was full of struggle, Think about what this verse just said. Our light and momentary weaknesses, troubles that are uh, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You take all that stuff and you're like, oh, my life is so difficult. And God is saying, this doesn't even compare to what you're going to wind up getting. Okay? Again, all God's people said? Amen thank you. The last thing in glorification that we get, God is going to give us a perfect environment to live in. The world, when sin entered the world, the world fell apart. And that is everything. We oftentimes think of sin toward one another, but sin cracked the entire universe. It cracked creation. That's why Adam and Eve had to uh, start working the garden and it was difficult for them. It cracked the universe. That's why so many different things are out of alignment. It cracked and broke everything. When when our eventual glorification comes, the world will be remade. Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth Remember those two Greek words I told you earlier? neos meaning youthful and kinos meaning remade, made new. It's kinos again. Then I saw a new heaven, remade, and a new earth, remade. And by the way, in fact, I had this question, I think, earlier this week. When it talks about a new heaven, are we talking about a new place where God lives? The answer is no. It's talking about the heavens. It's talking about the rest of the universe. And the reason is, God is going to remake everything that sin touched. This earth, us, and the universe are all going to be remade and sin is going to be no more. Let me read again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things, the sinful world, sinful life has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That's what we have to look forward to. And is it any wonder that John, at the end of the book of Revelation, concludes the book of Revelation, concludes the Bible with these words, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. You read about that glorification and what we're going to receive. That should be our response. (laughs) Jesus, get here even faster because I want to be there with you. Unlike the acorns, at the beginning of the message, we have a gift that is unlike any gift that we could ever receive. And as we open the gift, we keep finding another gift and another gift and another gift. And in fact, I had to consolidate some of the gifts because again, I ran out of table and I ran out of boxes. All of these gifts, regeneration, justification, adoption, security, sanctification, all of these, excuse me, and glorification, all are wrapped up into one neat gift that is freely given. You don't have to earn salvation. It is yours for the taking. Christ offers it to us freely. We're approaching Christmas when we celebrate the greatest gift of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I asked Janice to sing that song for us today. Which, by the way, thank you very much. It was wonderful. First, the song is filled with allusions and quotes from scripture. And I did just a quick count this morning. Didn't dig deep. 29 allusions or quotes from scripture. I love that. But the song also walks us through the Advent story. So this whole sermon has been a little bit of a pre-Advent because Advent doesn't start till next week, but I figured I'd get it started early. The song begins with the darkness and desperation of our sin. It moves into Jesus coming to earth as a baby, Jesus' mission here on earth, his death and resurrection, and the results of what his resurrection accomplished. The only thing that that song missed is the second coming of Christ. That's it. This is the gift that is all wrapped up in the child that we celebrate who was born in Bethlehem. And if you have never received this gift, this amazing free gift that Jesus offers to you, you can do that right where you're sitting. If you need a little help, you're more than welcome to come talk to me afterwards. Very happy to sit and talk with you. Talk with me, talk with one of the elders or the deacons. We are excited to be able to share this gift with you. If you have received this gift, I hope you take the time to unpack it completely starting today, all through this Advent season, discover all those amazing things that are packed inside that one box of salvation and what that all really means for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, so much for the gift of salvation. It is brought to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We celebrate him coming to earth uh, over these next several weeks But Lord, help us to remember what his coming here accomplished. It was all pointing forward. It was all pointing to what he did on the cross for us and offering us salvation freely. Lord, I pray if anybody here does not have that salvation, they have not accepted that free gift, I pray that you'd be working their heart right now, that they would be talking to you right now and saying, yes, I need this in my life. Lord, for those of us who already have had this gift, I pray that we would learn how to appreciate it fully that we would open it up and look at its various parts and see how and where that really touches into our lives and what that really does for us as we relate to you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.